Hello? Looks like everybody's here now. So we'll start our panel about big data. First, um, it might be helpful to define what big, hi Gary. <laughs> it might be helpful to define what big data is. Because, you know, we're surrounded by data and data's been coming at us for decades now. Why all of a sudden big? So some people define it as vast amounts of data coming in all shapes and sizes and coming at us fast and furious. So it's characterized by volume, velocity, and variety. But we're here to discuss the fourth V, which is value. Is there any value in having all this big data surrounding us and, and and is there any value in collecting all this data about people, including ourselves? So here to discuss this topic, first person here to my left is Daniel Savage, EVP of Symmetrics. And then Ty Roberts, Chief Science Officer at Grace Note. No, Strategy. Strategy Officer, okay. Science, that's a teleportation conference. That's <laughs> Bill Hajar. <laughs> Bill Hajar, CEO of Sanzari and Doug Scott, head of marketing at Bandpage. So I wanna start off the panel for, to ask each one of you an example of how big data is changing the music landscape today. Let's start with Daniel. Oh, good. Um, I think uh, you know, what I've noticed in the last few years of working with Symmetric, AKA Music Metric, um, I think there is definitely a new generation of executives in various parts of the music business who are embracing the idea of using data, not slavishly, not to necessarily replace the um, artistic aesthetic aspects of our business, but to make better informed decisions to increase spending efficiencies in this day and age when nobody has any money to do anything. And um, you know what we're seeing is that you know, whereas a few years ago there there were new opportunities to reach consumers and everybody would kind of jump on board, kind of like in a me too, like oh we got to do that thing because everybody else is doing it. I think people are now kind of stepping back and having the opportunity now, especially with a few years of historical data behind them, to see you know we're spending a lot of money on X Y Z. Is that really working for us, or should we be spending? money elsewhere. So one of the things that we help to do is uh, we help to not only provide data, but it's very important to us to make it contextualized so people are able to actually make sense of it and apply it to what they're doing. Do you have a, um, a client example of how your data has been used to improve whatever it is they set out to improve with your data? Um, they, they use it in a lot of different ways. Um, like I said, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily quote an actual client for various reasons, but um, we de we have had conversations where, for example, I'll look at an artist, um, I'll, I'll overlay YouTube plays over Facebook fan acquisition for a particular mm -hmm. artist. This actually did happen, and. I saw there's a huge disparity, lots of YouTube activity, no relatively flat line on Facebook. And I said, guys, you have one or two things happening here. Either um, they're watching the video and they're mm -hmm. citing, we just don't like this, <laughs> in which case you have a problem. Right. Or there's somehow a mechanical disconnect. You, you've got them at the, at the YouTube page. You're not bringing them back in and making a fan out of them. And the two people in the social media department at this label looked at each other kind of sheepishly. And I said, right, you have to let me in on the joke. And they said, well, we're having problems with this artist because they've been posting their own videos to their channel without telling us. So it wasn't tagged correctly. They didn't have a link to their other social platforms, et cetera, et cetera. So we just had to tell her literally last Thursday, she's not allowed to do that anymore. And I said, okay, well that's good. Wouldn't it have been nice if you had had this picture you could actually show her to say that, like we're not just being arbitrary here, like you're actually shooting yourself in the foot by doing the way you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Good example, Ty? Um, so I think with Grace Note, you know, I think many of you guys know we have identification technology and we started actually in music. We had you know, CD identification, and then we had audio fingerprinting and file recognition, and then you know, stream identification. 
And then we actually went into video, so we had DVD recognition, TV schedules, electronic program red searches, catch-up TV recommendations. So before we know it, we had a really broad landscape and a global landscape of all of the different media uses people have. Way beyond just music. Music is just one media. And so the, the reality of that is that we started to say, hey, you know, first of all, there's companies that we could work with who have analysis platforms, analysis programs. Um, we can let them work with us and with their customers to let people, you know, have access to some of that information. We can also use the information to better improve the products that our customers have. And Graystone's primarily a B2B company. And so, for example, we, we license or sell technology for people to make uh, radio channel generation possible in products like Apple, iTunes, or whatever, or um, other products. And that radio channel generation can benefit from a broader perspective of the consumer's um, tastes, and primarily in the area of new artist information. Because one of the problems that people have is what to do with a new artist who's, you know, if your song just appeared in Spotify and it didn't happen to be featured on the, you know, discovery page because somebody in the company liked it, the chance that somebody's going to find out about it isn't all that great if they're just looking at the pure statistics. It won't come up in the playlisting automatically. But if there was somebody out there doing stream identifications of that, for example, at a live show or a nightclub or somewhere else, and that was trending along with maybe some social data, then we might be able to give the information to the music playing product to put that into a playlist automatically. And so it would increase the exposure possibility for especially new artists or new tracks or new, even new genres of music uh, exponentially. And uh, uh, it's like it's not helpful to play the hits when it's already a hit. It's called how do you spot the hit before it is one. And that might be happening in other media. I think a lot of you guys know that music on YouTube is much bigger than music anywhere else. And so the reality is, is that you have to look across these different mediums to get, a, to get the right answer today. Phil? Uh, so you know, we, we are a graph-based um, big data media technology company. And to use some of your examples, you know, we're, we, we look at high volume and high velocity uh, as well as uh, high variety in order to provide uh, recommendations. Uh, but you know, taking that all into account, really what, what are we getting to our B2B clients? And we're giving them insights to help them make decisive thinking on, on whatever that um, feature they want to offer their customer set. That all being said, that doesn't really mean a lot, right? But I mean, if you look at really what the landscape and how does that, you know, what how music ties to it, you know, you get a smartphone, it's got, a, it's got an accelerometer on it, it's got a location, obviously GPS system on it. You have wearable devices now. You have uh, the ability to use other APIs to, to get Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds and uh, SoundCloud feeds, and you can you can really get a good, great landscape of who that user is by provide, you know, taking all of that data, putting it all together and saying, all right, this is who my user is and this is what I'm gonna provide them and I'm gonna provide them something that they're gonna like. And I think that's really where um, you know, this, this whole big data can go. Is it's actually just making somebody happier on a, you know, a three minute basis. Doug? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna echo that a little bit because I think the whole job of data is to help people find things that they like. Um, at the end of the day, and there's a tremendous opportunity for the music business right now. The music business is sitting on this incredible commodity of online engagement, unlike any other category that exists online, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, it's kind of like the shale oil boom, if you will. It was just sitting there the whole time, and people kind of knew it was there, but people couldn't really turn it into value until they had the right technology. And data is the drill in that analogy that really unlocks that, that potential because through data, when someone's doing things just in a totally natural and real way, the best form of possible market research, um, you can see that, you can find patterns, and you can more intelligently, programmatically, find ways to put something that they're gonna like more in front of them. And as creepy as things like retargeting can be for people where like, hey, you looked at a pair of shoes, you even put it in a, a shopping basket, but you didn't buy it, and then it follows you around the internet for a couple of days. The, 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 the reality of that is that, and that is a little creepy, but I don't know if that's just because we're not used to it, but the reality is, is I'd much rather see that than a bottle of Clorox, and no offense to any Clorox people in the room. Um, but you know, that, that's something that's more relevant to me. I put it in my box, in my out, you know, my uh, shopping cart because I'm interested in it. Yeah, I mean, and I, just a, you know, that, we've all we all loved when at first you know when oh yeah, how'd they know I was wanting to go to Cyprus, right? I mean, that, that retargeting is a cool way to make somebody emotionally you know connected to what they were doing or what they what they have. 
It's and value added creep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we call that v- v- VAC yeah, in the business. The yeah, right. Yeah, so acronyms are less scary. Um, <clears throat> but just to bring it back to biz- you know to music for a second, um, Bandpage is a company that helps artists syndicate out content and offers to various music services. So we're partnering with lots of third-party music services, and um, you know the real magic will happen when we can pair up fans and what their behavior has been to the artists that they're interested in and make sure that we can connect those artists and the stuff that they have to the fans. Because right now, I think there's just this huge disconnect where there's all this amazing stuff that artists have for fans that fans just aren't aware of. And making that connection is ultimately comes down to iterating on tons and tons and tons of data. Um, so that's, I think it's sense at the core of the future of the music business. Doug, you brought up a really good point, which is we're not looking at um, chlorine, bleach, but we're looking at music, um, which is special. Um, it's an art form. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's hard to quantif- quantify, quantitate something that's, you know, artistic. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, um, we're trying to do it nevertheless. Um, can music as an art form be, uh, can you apply algorithms to music as an art form? You, you, well, first of all, you're actually applying algorithms to people's perception and use of the music as an art form. So you're not, it, it's gonna be a while before we can have an algorithm look at a picture of an artist and listen to some music and decide if that's gonna be a hit. That's a way, a way, a way. And that's not, so it's not interpreting you know, Bjork's dress or her style of music and saying, this is really different and we'll have a niche in, in the marketplace. So there's still actually a role for somebody to do that because that still actually has to happen. It's more once it's out there in some form, taking a small sample size of data and watching trends over time and learning from that to then be able to make some predictive analysis possible. But you're predicting human behavior which can be influenced by a number of outside factors, weather, war, you know, love, movies, anything, and so. Spring break. Yeah, spring break, exactly. <laughs> so the reality is, is that, that there are these other factors, and one of the things I would say about it is, is that it's not that simple. It's a tool, but the tool needs to be um, uh, properly piloted or properly instrumented so people can make those decisions. Yeah, I would say, that, you know, people do get, you know, they get really pissed off about kind of looking at big data and, and, and describing it the way you did, which is like, well, you know, I like this music because it's my music. It's for me. I discovered this band in this little corner bar in Boston or wherever. Um, and that's not what, you know, I think big data's job is to do. It's merely just more to say, hey, you know, you may like, if you like that really cool band in Boston, you may like these other bands. And then you have that kind of thrill of discovery, you know, on your desktop or on your mobile phone as opposed to actually having to go out, you know, every night like, you know, I used to do. You know, now it's a lot easier to do it. Uh, Right. Um, so yeah, so I think it's just in generally speaking, it's it's it, they're two different things, right? There's an emotional love of something, and there's just the general um, way that you find out that you actually love other things. Daniel, I think you said something really insightful about gut feel on this very topic. Shocking. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think the analogy <laughs> I like to use a lot is, um, you know, it's as if. I go up to you and say, "Hi, um, do you want to buy stock? It's forty-eight dollars a share." Like no one would just say, "Sure, okay, that sounds good." You would want to know everything else. You would want to know Facebook. what's the fifty-two week high low. What are the competitors in the space doing? Uh, what's the P/E ratio, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So now that you have all that other information, now you can make a decision. So at the end of the day, it's still going to be a gut decision, but it's an informed gut decision. So, you know, with our customers, for example, you know, they now. You know, as far as making decisions about whether or not to sign an artist or whether to continue trying to promote a song at radio or what have you, you know, ultimately that is going to be a gut call. And that's why those people exist and make their inflated salaries. But um, it's going to be a gut call based on actual contextualized information. There's also the challenge of people's musical tastes changing over time and pe- people's musical tastes changing based on where they are, the, the, what they're doing, who they are with. Um, you know, as we, we were talking earlier, uh, Amazon knew that I needed diapers at one point and it's, uh, even though my son's eight years old, he, they're still showing me diaper ads. Um, <laughs> so people evolve over time and that, that's similar with music. Are there, I mean, can we talk a little bit about how musical taste sort of presents a unique challenge? I, 
I could talk about context as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, like when my four-year-old was in the back seat, I, I, like I listened to you, yo, Gabba Gabba, which I would never listen to ever. But the reality is, so context, other people affect it. And then the fact is, is that there are people who are constantly appreciating and liking new kinds of music. And that's probably like a lot of the people that are here in this room, that's why you guys are in this business. But there's other people whose musical tastes only evolved as a background thing as part of their life, maybe when they were in college or high school, and they never really ventured that much in music, and they kind of just like that kind of stuff. Those are non-adventurous consumers, and so it's really important when you're trying to market things to people to figure out who you're going for. And you know, the analogy for radio would be, you know, top 40 radio, which is thing that we all digital people don't think exists. Well, the reality is it was really happy. A lot of people were really happy with that in America. Like maybe 60% of people were happy with top 40 radio. And 40% wanted something more like FM or alternative radio and then the internet and all this kind of stuff. So it is important to understand that taste, the taste of the individual can change for some people and maybe not for others. And also some people have very narrow tastes and some people have very broad tastes. Okay, now, yeah. oh. I was just gonna say, uh, Add to what Ty was saying. There's, there's definitely a degree of difficulty to how hard it is to predict what someone's going to be interested in. But everyone leaves breadcrumbs, you know, and they might be more scattered around. And in all those breadcrumbs, there are patterns. And that's really at its core what big data is about is how do you find those patterns, strip away the noise? Ty was talking about some things that can cause noise um, and find the patterns that are specific to that individual. And I think that's sort of the rub there's you know there's aggregated data that can be used to show trends or patterns um, but then there's specific recommendations which is an intensely personal thing but now online on mobile there is uh, just so much information that leads you towards something that's better perfect probably never but increasingly better for sure mm-hmm. yeah and I would just add I mean as far as especially what we're doing with graph theory um, time and location, time especially is one of the hardest things to, to quantify because it's you know, time of your life, time of the day, time of the year. Um, there's all sorts of definitions of time and how you, how you project that into a graph or into anything. Um, but you know, that's what we've been working on very hard. And I think it's, you, know, you add that with location and weather data, and we don't, we don't weigh any of that. So there's, you know, we let the, the, the actual graph weigh itself and cluster it in order to give the, you know, the ultimate user you know, some, you know, so as Ty said, maybe that user didn't change what they liked or didn't like. Or maybe, you know, maybe, that, that you, maybe you have another two-year-old that you do have to buy that diaper for. And somehow Amazon knew that, and you were excited about it, but you didn't really realize it. So it's, you know, there's a lot of different ways to figure that out. Um, but it's extremely hard. I mean, that time is one of the hardest things to do, and that's why I think even Amazon has trouble with it from a recommendation side. I think it's, I think it's also important to recognize that uh, music consumers are not monolithic in their behavior. Um, people that like music also like doing other things. They like movies, they like TV shows, they play video games, what have you. So one of the things that we're looking at is the whole concept of affinity. So. You know, last year when I came to this conference, my badge said music metric. You know, now it's symmetric because we are starting to collect data from all the other verticals, film, television, video games, books, and a few other things. And what we are really interested in doing is starting to draw affinities among all those different verticals to be able to know that someone that likes Drake also likes this video game and this TV show and this movie, and that ultimately also could help you in a predictive way to say like, okay, I know that's the profile of someone that likes Drake, so now I just need to go find more people like that and kind of reverse engineer back to your marketing plan. Or it could, could be Drake going, you know, he could be saying, hey, I should make a video game and a movie that tie together because that's gonna really hit my fan base. And he may, he may have like been kind of down in video games until maybe he read that stat and then he goes, hmm, those video game things aren't so bad. I might want to try to think about that. So who knows? But I think the, the, the overall idea is to look at the persons and kind of like I said at the beginning, their overall media scape, their overall media life. And that extends beyond the media they consume into the activities, the locations, the food, the places they go, travel. You know, and eventually somebody will have this, you know, uh, complete graph of the entire person or whatever, and maybe then even multiple persons within that, their social group. And so that's really, I think, where it's all going, you know, to that kind of, you know, much more complex and rich profile in the future. Also, you could, you could find out, um, brand, you can match, better match artists with brands oh, who absolutely. want to reach that particular demographic. Um, if you don't know who your audience is, it's kind of hard to sell that to brands. 
But if you do, it's a much easier sell. Absolutely. What about sentiment analysis? You hear a lot of talk about being able to scour the web. We scour thousands of blogs to see if uh, sentiment about your band is growing or um, lessening. How accurate is that really? I think it's generally accepted that sentiment analysis is only accurate like 80%, 70, 80% of the time. Sentiment sucks. Um, it's super, <laughs> super hard. I always thought you were so sentimental, too. Um, it's super hard. You know, there's just so many variables, you know, including something as, you know, fundamental as fundamental as your band is called fun. And, like, so now does that mean you're going to have 100% positive all, yes, sentiment, yes. you know, kind of thing? Every mention of you is fun. <laughs> So, you know, I think a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. So um, I think before you really start unleashing sentiment into the world as part of your mix of data analysis, you have to be sure you've really nailed it because if you start getting a few false positives, then perhaps someone starts thinking, well, the rest of your data may be suspect because like, this is not really accurate. Yeah, it's like the, a small data example is more like the, when you see a movie trailer and it's, it says, this is the greatest movie of all time from like John Schmo at, at you know, somewhere. That's, you know, it's, it's just some regular, you know, just some guy that they, there was it's such a bad movie that they couldn't <laughs> find anybody to give them a good recommendation on it or a good uh, review. So uh, you're right, you know, you can't, you, you, you know, the analysis of that can go either way. And I, and I think it's, it's probably something that should be left more as noise for now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would also say trolls rule. Like yeah. basically, like when you have somebody post, and you guys can see this any open forum thing. Like some guy gets in there and says, "These guys totally suck." Then actually, people post, "No, they do not. They're awesome. You know, they do not suck." And you feel, "Yes, they do. That's the worst band ever. You're an idiot." And that's like what happens with the negative guy. The positive guy goes, "This band rules." And then what are you going to say? No, it doesn't. It rules more. <laughs> it's even better than that. It doesn't work. So the po unfortunately, there's an overabundance of negativeness in general. Negative. It's like negative news. Negative sells. It's the left sets effect. <laughs> and I love Bob. Bob loves We Bob. all do. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you, you know, we're, uh, I started this by saying we're awash in data. It's just so much going on. It's overwhelming. How do we make, I mean, what's the best approach to make sense of the data? What are, are there key, um, key performance indicators that music as an, industry, as an industry should focus on less than other verticals? Are there, is there a methodology for approaching all this data to see what matches with what you want to do? Um, I guess I could just go out and hire Grace Note and Symmetric and not even think about it, but. I think it's, first of all, I think it's a, for people who are looking for something to do in the music business, if you have a mathematical background, it is a wide open field of awesome jobs and there's just going to be tons of people needing to analyze all this stuff. And nobody's got the magic perfect sauce. You can go to work for him, he's got lots of really smart guys and he's a smart guy, or us. But the reality is that the, the I think it's, it's just the beginning of this right now. And we haven't done any of this really kind of multi-dimensional profiling stuff really yet. We just have the early beginnings of that. So we're like in the very beginning of, you know, reading, it's life of the power of business. It's like we've like re realized how to read the meter, but we haven't figured out what it is and we're a long way from the smart meter. So I think it's, uh, it's just the beginning. And yeah. the, yeah, good, the good so. news is that, you know, it used to be really super hard to build a website, right? <laughs> And then WordPress came along. And like, oh, wow, this is really cool. I can do my own website. It's super easy. It's WYSIWYG. So there are a lot of tools out there like WordPress for big data, if you will. Yeah. Um, so you know, that would be my recommendation would be like, yeah, you could you know, try to figure it out yourself and start pulling data from all over the place. Or you know what? There's all sorts of great tools. Uh, that all of us up here use, use, the, APIs, and, use the tools. Yeah, and I would say that you know, obviously, a lot of big data is built on Hadoop, um, and we use a graph distributed graph software called Titan. And it's it's as, as you said, it's 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 extremely difficult stuff. And we have graph scientists and data scientists and PhDs and everything figuring that out. 
That's great. I mean, it's, it's almost like we've been sitting in line at this great amusement park, and you know, we, our companies and you, you know, the companies on this panel have been sitting there. Now we're, we got, we're led into the amusement park, so we're giving you the ability to kind of cut the line and come in with the, the amusement park with us and go on the ride. So you know, the job then is, well, you know, I, I want to go on this you know, ride. There's, not, there's nobody else in line on that ride. It's an easy ride to go on. Some of the other great rides, the roller coaster rides, that probably takes some of your data too, right? And you need to know what to do with that data. And then you, you, know, then you kind of work with these APIs and you get to that point where then you're on a, this cool roller coaster ride of features and, and really taking advantage of it. So it's, uh, the good news is we're in the amusement park and you know, the bad news is you know, there's gonna take, you know, it takes some, some data and some understanding of what you want out of that data in order to, to make you know, whatever you're trying to do a reality. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, it really depends on what you're trying to do and how custom that is. And that draws a continuum between using tools to having lots of super big brain people running around your office kind of thing. <clears throat> and, you know, for us, a lot of what we're doing is fairly well trod in the online advertising space where you have publishing inventory and you have offers and you basically are trying to optimize those based on a data set that you can feed in in real time and then serve up an offer. Um, and as a result of that, I mean, there's a lot of established tools that we can tap into to help us organize and make sense of that data in real time. Um, some of it's a little messy, so we definitely have a few of our own data scientists, but for the most part, there's a lot of established tools if it's something that's being done by lots of other people. Someone once told me that uh, you focus on the one thing that is important to you. So if it's sales, then you focus on buying behavior, and then you go from there. You build out the data from there. If it's streaming data or streaming activity, you focus on that, and then you try to find what, what are the relevant points of data that will lead to streaming. Um, so that's, uh, that's the one piece of advice I, I heard. I want to uh, make sure that folks in the audience also get to ask questions, so feel free to raise your hand if you have a question for us. Um, in the meantime, I want to ask you the question of whether or not we really need data to be that big in order to get meaning from it. <laughs> Can small data be as meaningful? Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. absolutely. <laughs> I think I think that that's just become a term. This big data concept, it, you know, while certainly the reach of my company's gotten bigger, you know, we've always had a lot of data. We've always had more data than we could, you know, handle. So the reality is, we've always had big data. It wasn't that big of a company, you know, ten years ago. It's really it's really the idea that computers have gotten so fast now, and we talked a little bit about this before, that you can now take massive data sets and crunch them in real time. You can actually there's enough horsepower now that you can take these things and cook it, and like it doesn't take a week to get an answer. And when you have real-time system, then you can start to apply real-time control panels and models to it. So you can start to try all kinds of different combinations. And uh, that's really, like, I think, the most exciting part about all of this, which is, which is you can try some of those combinations on smaller amounts of data even faster, and then you can see if something's working, then you can try it on the big set and see if it still holds together. And so. That is kind of a model for how some of the people are doing work today. Yeah, I think velocity is definitely the key. I mean, if you can do this stuff in real time, it really, I mean, especially what, in the industry that we're in, uh, music, you need to, you know, entertain your, your customer base every three minutes, right? So, and, and you can't, uh, you know, I've used this analogy before, you, you know, in, back in the day, you'd take a week to, to, to predict what the next day was on a weather, uh, using weather mapping in, in big uh, computers. And you can't, you know, you, you, this just wouldn't work anymore today. So, and, I mean, now you can do the thing, that same week-long worth of computer uh, power, and, you know, like that. And you should be, if you can do that, you should be able to get good, you know, good features out of that, right? I mean, there's 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 a lot of data out there, whether that's big, small, or others. I think you could, if you could take advantage of it, you do need it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just a practical application, slightly outside the music space, but I used to run a marketing organization for a company called DNA, which is the largest mobile gaming company, um, and we were the largest buyer of mobile banner ads. I'm pretty sure, and uh, so we were spending you know ten, twelve, fifteen million dollars a month just buying mobile banner ads, and we would absolutely, ritually, just aggressively test a small data set. So we'd be finding like what's the lifetime value, which is all predictive modeling based on the future of someone's flow. And, and as soon as we identified a key source down to a very targeted 
you know, channel and geo and all these things. Then we would just pile in with money until we saw that LTVs dip back down. We tapped out that source and we'd run on. It was kind of rapacious in some ways, but it was very effective. And we ultimately ended up increasing the effectiveness of that, you know, on per dollar marketing spend by, in about six months, we took it up over like almost 15 times. Well, you realize like nobody's selling me. I mean, there's nobody doing that really for music, but it could totally be done. It's like, all there. In fact, more words, data. There's nobody yeah. running like, and these are how all ad networks work. There's guys sitting consoles saying, I'm buying that traffic. I'm getting those ads. I'm seeing how that's money. Okay, now I'm playing that across this. There's nobody doing that. And that actually could happen. There would be a different form. It would be in channels of music and streams of music. But right now it's a lot, it's not really organized that way. And it's not really being done as an offer in a sense. Right, exactly. Tick, tick, it seems maybe one of the places where that could be done maybe first would be ticketing and live shows. I think anything, it, it can be done for anything that can be sold, really, and tracked online. Right. Actually, yeah. um, we have a team of people at Smule doing exactly that. <laughs> It feels yeah. a little dirty, yeah. I have to admit. <laughs> but um, another uh, application of the the notion of LT using big data to leverage what the LTV numbers, the lifetime value of the customer is, is um, a company called Ninja Metrics, and it's based on uh, technology out of um, USC um, and University of Illinois, where they assign not just the lifetime value of the person doing the transaction, but they tie it to your social graph. So um, say you might not spend a lot of money, but you, when, whatever you say influences a lot of other people within your social graph to spend money. So that equates to your social influence and your social value. And Ninja Metrics has two, um, two numbers that it gives for every person. It's their lifetime value, what they actually spend, and their lifetime social value, which is how much influence do they have on their friends to also spend. But the data sets they use are um, not talk data, you know, like twi Twitter sentiment data, but actual transaction data. So they don't care what you say, they care what you do. Um, and I think that's a really novel application of this whole notion of lifetime value because, you know, we have, as you know, we have other value just in how, just more than just how much we spend. Um, I hate, to, I, I hate to get the score where right? you have like a zero lifetime value and a zero social value. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, they actually spit out a dollar amount, which is kind of pathetic for me. Ninja metrics. Uh, so uh, the the web is becoming increasingly more image driven. So the, the the social web is very image driven with Pinterest and Snapchat and so on hundreds of millions of photos being uploaded, um, 72 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute or whatever. Um, that's a lot of unstructured data um, that's being uploaded. Um, uh, structured versus unstructured. Structured is like name, last name, location. You know, it's, it's all tied, tagged. And unstructured is the messy stuff. You know, the, the pictures that you throw up, the, the videos, the, the, um, the videos that you watch, videos that you share, that sort of thing. And it is also a signal of what you are interested in. And I know companies like Facebook and Google are intensely interested in researching unstructured data of this type to kind of do predictive analysis of what people are likely to do and what they're interested in. Does this um, present an opportunity, a challenge for music? Well, it's an <laughs> it opportunity for sure. I, mm -hmm. I mean, for my, I mean, there's a bunch of companies out there because like unstructured data, fine. There's still tons of stuff associated with unstructured data, like various forms of metadata or hashtags or other things that are ultimately tied to it. There's timestamps, there's locations, there's all kinds of stuff. And I think there's a bunch of companies out there doing really cool stuff with unstructured data in the music space. Like one, one is this company called Crowd Album that's here in San Francisco. Um, and really it's just, I mean, it's just a one side example, but basically they're just scraping like Instagram and a couple of other sources, organizing stuff by all of that metadata into events. So like they can pretty conclusively say that this thing came from this event, usually a, a show. And you know they collect all the pictures from that and all the other stuff. And it's really cool. Because you look at it and you're like, I wasn't at that show, but I kind of feel like I was. And you know you wade through a few selfies and stuff like that, but there's a ton of amazing <laughs> content in there. And it's all programmatically done. And I think that's an example of using, you know, looking at unstructured data, but finding the structure within it. Um, that makes it, makes it meaningful.
And we're 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 in our research lab, working very hard on doing a couple things for on on video and film. We're analyzing the soundtrack of video video and film to extract the mood. We want to create the mood of the video and actually a mood kind of timeline for what's happening across the film. So like scary, you know, exciting, and actually much more detailed than that. But essentially, you can then draw a lot of information about what other aspects of the film are actually there because the soundtrack is very indicative in most films or TV shows of what's actually happening on the screen. It's easier to figure it out from that than trying to analyze, wow, that's a tired, he's doing a burnout. You know, it, it's, that's where actually in the future. Um, on photographs, what's happening with that is what he's saying, placing them within a context and then analyzing the points of interest, you know, and if you can look, if it's, a, if it's a music, you can analyze the pictures of the band and you can say, aha, this band must have a, this lead singer's got a lot of photos of him, he must be pretty interesting, or very few photos of the lead singer, lots of photos of the guitar player, or, you know, what's happening during the live soundtrack at that time. So the, 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 the analyzation of images and the analyzation of video and then the associated metadata, huge area for, for our company and huge area of interest. It's also uh, kind of varies based on what channel these images are presented in. So I think there was a study about um, engagement in images um, and what kinds of qualities an image has to drive engagement, um, such as repins and shares and likes and so on. So for um, somebody did an uh, analysis in November 2013, a company called Cure Latte um, did what was engaging on Instagram and what was engaging on Pinterest, and they found the opposite. Um, on Instagram, people preferred rough um, textured, rough textures over smooth images. So rough texture being fabrics and smooth being just uh, milk. Um, whereas on Pinterest, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's the smooth texture drives 17 times engagement for that image than rough. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's odd. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of thing that, deep, that, that big data com comes up with, it's strange insights like that. It makes you think, well, why is that? Um, but it brings us back to the notion of, yes, we have these uh, data points, but we still need people to interpret them. Or we have machines, so we, <laughs> Fair enough. we know, we just rolled out uh, <laughs> part of our service, it's called Automated Insights. And like, remember now, we track over five million artists, we're processing like seven billion data points per hour. And so a lot of times, as we said earlier, the challenge of the big data is, uh, pardon the pun, but it's like you're trying to drink out of a fire hose, right? So what am I looking at? So people, they come up to the dashboard and then all of a sudden like, ah. Uh, so we try to get them started by having the machine go through all the data for your artist and pull out things that if you ever found them, it would probably take you a few hours or you would have to have like a team of data scientists that work for you. So whether it's, you know, did you realize that this artist has just reached a 26 high, 26 week high in their Vivo views and that's because of uh, this one particular video or it had this particular milestone as far as chart activity, or um, you know, they've jumped in the social fan ranking, or they've, they've had a 18 week, things that, you know, if you're a radio promotion guy or something like, like little sound bites, just like, wow, that's really interesting. And depend, you know, if you're close enough to the project, you'll see things like, wow, we're actually doing a lot better than I thought we were. Did you, hey Bob, did you realize that like, our video is being shown more now than ever before in this artist album cycle, that kind of thing. So, so the machine, you know, keeps learning, and we have a thumbs up, thumbs down feature. So if people think that's a really good insight, keep it up, or or not, or this is just wrong, they can tell us, and then the machine just keeps learning and perfecting it. Yeah, yeah it's like any it's like any data. I mean, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? If you can take that and structure data and make structure out of it, as you said, and make sense of it, and it's worthwhile for your client base, then it's then it's it's right. And if you can't, um, then it's crap. You know, it's gar you know it's garbage. So, uh, you know, it's that's it's there's there's a lot of ways to keep keep skinning that cat. You just gotta keep you know keep trying it, and you know once you have built the platform, like you guys like you said, Dan. You know, you can you can do a lot of cool things with it and, and do a lot of analytical um, thinking with it, and allow your clients to, yes, to do the same. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think like what's so cool about what you guys are doing is like the the visualizations, like that bubble map you have with the artists and how they Can all interact with the each over other. There. Go check it out. Um, you know, very early in my career, I started out doing market research uh, for Polygram, and I had a boss. I used to write these very very scholarly you know analyses of things, and my boss said, "Stop with the words already." <laughs> Dan people doesn't strike me music, as a scholarly People type. in the music business only understand like cartoons. <laughs> so just do a graph and like two sentences after it. And so like I think visualizations are really super important also just because it really hits home like wow, I can really see that now. So whether it's a heat map or you know the stuff that you've had yeah, on like Grace Note. We have a, you know, animated mood thing that basically shows the mood of a song and you can play like Bohemian Rhapsody through it and you'd be surprised that even within that song there are hundreds of different moods of things at any one time. Any questions? Yeah. Just want to make sure. Yes. That's yes, it. you. The gentleman in the white hat. We don't have oh. Yeah, yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's coming. You want to come up here? I'm looking for his friend Mike. Ah. Yeah. Has anybody seen Mike? I like Mike. Hi, my name my name is uh, Carl Williams. I'm a digital strategist uh, out of New York. My question is: Will there ever be one source uh, that every company can go to to get data in the world? Will I ever Google. the NSA? Will I ever Google? NSA. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's funny you just said that. I you know I was just in with the the licensing panel and, and came here to this and and Google thinks that the publishers need to provide that. They don't think that they should provide that. But I agree with you. Google can probably do it. No, I mean I, I don't I don't agree with that. I mean it's you know there's always going to be new and innovative ways to get access to you know what makes sense for the consumer or their or their client base. And like I said, you know Titan, this this distributed software that we use is just was you know it's which was invented like a year ago. I mean that's you know that's the, the things will come come further than that. So um, you know although Google invents a lot of it and has a lot of the the data scientists there, there's always going to be innovative thinking. I mean crap, we're in the, the the mecca of it here, right? I mean that's why everybody's here. So yeah, I would hope they, there's not they, one company or we should just quit. There used to be Encyclopedia Britannica, but there also used to be World Book. I mean, so you are old. Be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I moisturized them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it also, I mean, there's different things. I mean, I realize people want to have, there's problems in the industry that need to be solved. Like, people need to be able to get to publishing data so they can pay people. Like, that's a problem that needs to be solved. What I need, you need one person to do it because that's the only way it can be solved. I don't know. But, I wouldn't recommend that we all have one source of data for everything. That's probably just not a good idea. It doesn't make very good computer IT sense either, just because yeah. that one network will go down. It'd be great if you could go across town and get them from somebody else while they fix their you know, hardware. Yeah, and just in general, I think the pace that data is growing and the, the spiraling way in which it's, it's sort of exponentially or beyond that uh, developing basically means that it laughs at anyone who tries to ultimately tame it in one, one place or one way. So, yes, uh, the gentleman in the gray first, and then the gentleman in the white shirt next. Hi, um, you know there are a lot of different data sets right now, like in music. You mentioned the problem of trying to figure out what band is about to break, what's the next big hot band, whatever. Um, do you find that there? I mean, between like social data in terms of people talking about bands or Shazam data and you know, plays and such, shares. Do you, like, do you find that one of these different sets produces better leading signals to predicting who's going to, um, you know, blow up better than the other? Or is there one that, like, really sticks out above the crowd? Or do you feel like it's really sort of an aggregate thing that you you know, can produce a proper leading signal if you can model it? <laughs> well, doing that. It sounds a, a lot like what uh, what Leo Cohen's doing with his with his you know his new venture with Google put money into and they're working with he's working with Twitter to try to figure that same thing out. So I mean my answer is that I I you know I don't know. I mean that's that's the you know it's a billion dollar question, right? I mean if you can find that one artist, that's a billion dollars for your for your label. So yeah, yeah I mean I, my my question would be there. There are artists that are multi the multidimensional nature of artists doesn't doesn't make necessary sense. Some artists are who they are because of what they do on YouTube, mm -hmm. and some artists are who they are of what their song actually is. Some electronic music artists are like what events they're at. Some artists 
the music is like they are music artists, but it's their life that's much more interesting than their music. And so, like the fact they crash their car and they get a DUI and they marry a crazy celebrity and they start a purse company and then they do, you know, like that stuff is much more interesting than their music. But they're still music artists, so it's like, and then their music sells because they're interesting. So I. I guess I would say that these are people. People are multidimensional, and so what works for one person may not work for another. Certainly, these different social media things reflect overall interest in the public in them, so there's some sort of effective interest, but in terms of predicting a breakout, it's just another, like you're saying, it's another insight. It's also it's an insight for that person, but I mean, cross-comparing it with other persons is, a little, is really a challenge, too. Like, you, your dashboard, put two artists together, it'd be hard to say, this guy's doing something wrong, or this guy's doing something right. That's not the kind of thing it really does. Well, we, we've also, we, we, we look at this all, all the time, obviously. Um, we definitely see different behavior depending on the type of music it is, too. So, in the EDM world, I would pay a lot more uh, attention to torrent activity. Yep. Mm -hmm. In the top 40 world, I'd pay a lot more attention to Facebook activity. So, you know, that's something that we do a lot of. Yeah, we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, the different websites and, you know, SoundCloud and some of these other things versus more traditional music outlets and, you know, stuff, new stuff for certain genres is getting up on those other distribution points a lot faster than it is getting into major music website stores or portals. Question in the back. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Peter Petro. I do a podcast called The Near Future, which is uh, exploring kind of disruptive models in the music industry. And my question is is kind of similar to the one that you just poised, which was, uh, you know, what do you think, and this is, I guess, part of your pitch as companies, in looking at uh, the potential to increase revenue for the content owners, Where where is the greatest potential? For example, you know, is it in increasing the... Uh, appropriateness of certain kinds of advertising that can then, you know, be something that comes back to the creators? Is it, you know, where are the, the areas that for a content owner uh, that they can actually increase their revenue using big data? Mark, I'm going uh, to say I would take it to a slightly different place other than just content because like we were talking earlier, um, around an artist, for instance, it's not just necessarily about the content. There's a whole story that people imbue, whether, you know, how they experienced that artist for the first time that, or whatever, that, you know, it has value to them. And so there are things beyond just the content that gets created that an artist can create that has value. Um, so taking a slightly pr broader perspective, personally, and I work at Bandpage, so obviously this is what I believe, but you know, there's all this engagement out there. There's hundreds of millions of people every month, maybe billions of people every month, who are engaging with musical content and raising their hand and giving signals back to artists, ultimately, if that data can flow in that loop, saying, I'm interested in you, what do you have? And right now, there's no connection between those two things. There's engagement over here. There's things that artists have or could have over here. And most of those things are just never connected. And that is such a tremendous loss because it's like an immutable law of marketing that by putting things in front, relevant things in front of people, they are more likely to engage and ultimately buy them. That has been proven forever and ever in every channel. And so it's just the way humans are. And so right now there's an opportunity to do that at a scale that's pretty much unprecedented in any other industry online. And so by doing that, I think that's the biggest opportunity for content holders. There's also I, I think the equally big opportunity is in uh, geo-targeting. So whether you're tracking your own information, like I know where my music is being torrented, I can either say boo-hoo, I'm losing money, or like, hey, great, now I know where my fans are. Or if I think I'm gonna grow up one day and I'm gonna be the next Dave Matthews, I wanna see where his music is being torrented and I can go use that as my roadmap. Or where, I may mention on Twitter a lot, where is that happening for me? So the idea of, I mean, this is not anything new. Like We've always tried to be an industry, unless you're on top 40 radio, it's like the idea of starting out in five markets and spreading it out from there. So I think that's an opportunity, like knowing where your fans are and doing something about it. Like I, there seems to be a lot of activity in France, and yet I've never played there. 
I don't have a label over there that's promoting me on the radio, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, for me, I think the whole concept of geo-targeting is a super big opportunity. Daniel, you'd also mentioned that your company did a survey on what um, types of social activity correlates best with sales. And you're, you came up with a um, very counterintuitive result. Well, it's not that counterintuitive just because I've always believed that music sells music. So we found generally that those things which are more music driven, such as torrenting, streaming, SoundCloud, Last.fm, those were the platforms that correlated highest to sales, whereas something like Facebook or Twitter were pretty low down the list because, you know, you experience music, you like music, you buy music, and then, oh, you know what, I really like that band. I'm going to like their Facebook page so I can find out when they're coming to town or I'm going to sign out to bands in town or whatever it is. So, you know, I think nothing has changed in our industry. You know, music still sells music. Yes. Is the barrier to widespread adoption lie with the artist, the artist management, or the labels not taking the time to use this data or mine or exploit your offering? Well, I'd say a couple things. One is, for some artists, music is the loss leader for the other things that they do. So you've got a set of people where they'd love to make money from their music, but actually their music is the water by which they get their live shows and they get on television and they get on YouTube and they make money from ads and they do other stuff. So that's a whole set of people who are that business, and that's not a great thing about a business, but the business evolved for a set of people who are doing that. There's another set of people who actually are in the business of really selling music, and they may have several different business models. They may want to get their music into movies or TV shows, because there's a lot of money to be made if you can get a song on the, in, the, in that, or they want, really do want to still get onto radio, or they really still want to get onto uh, television. And so that, that's a different goal. And so one thing I see is, is that the industry is a little bit balkanized and not very good at handling these different multi-level artists. And like, there's practically nobody handling the YouTube artists. I don't know. There are probably some YouTube artist labels, but I don't know if they really are. And there's still people handling, obviously, the major music artists that are out there. But it's, 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 it's the balkanization of the business. There's not one guy that can do everything, and there's a lot of rules about what you can do. It's still, still some big barriers there. I think one of the big barriers right now is that the data is not really available. A lot of the data is not really available to the people who could ultimately do something with it. In many cases, you know, it's behind, everyone knows the data is valuable, but not everyone really knows exactly how they're going to access that value. You know, people are talking about how are we going to monetize our data? Like, well, a lot of people don't know yet, but they're kind of you know, jealously guarding it or carefully guarding it to make sure that no one else makes off with that value. Right. <laughs> and <clears throat> which, you know, I, I totally understand emotionally. But uh, once the, you know, the value chain, if you will, of the industry aligns in a way where by releasing that data and there's enough, you know, um, data points about people doing that and seeing value return to them, that's going to be a great and glorious future because then when that data starts to get mixed, someone asked earlier, what's the most powerful you know, channel out there? Well, I would say the channel that trumps the most powerful channel in any situation is a combination of channels and combination of data that allows you to put a much stronger picture together of, a, of whether it's user or whatever. And in that situation, that's where things get really, really exciting. So I think you know, some of the people who are sitting on top of a lot of user data or fan data right now should open those things up for people. And when they do, I think tremendous tremendous growth will result from that. Yeah. Oh. I was going to just say, like, if you guys look at these multi-value network, like you look at these game channels that are on YouTube or whatever, if you ever look at how the business works, they look at the top players that play the top games in the video game systems. They recruit those players to then record the exciting videos that go on the network. Those videos then get promoted out to a massive fan base. Those dudes and that network make a shitload of money. And they do it all. But it's in video games. We're not doing that in music, really. Yeah, I would I would agree with what you just said. Though cost effectiveness and allow, giving data out to the masses to allow I mean that's that's gets you more data as a company, right? Where where our mantra is a, is you know, high volume, high variety, but cost effective, like you know high velocity but cost effective solution to to the user base. Because if not, then you end up you know with 10% of the data that you need, and you end up going off on a tangent just because your your data is about all the music lovers in the world. When in reality, the the you know you make money on the other 80% of their 90% of the people in the world. Um, so, so yeah, that's all folks. Any other questions? 
Yes. She's coming. Mm -hmm. She's coming. Mike. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of us are familiar with the curve of the music aficionado being a small section of the market. Um, and a lot of times I've heard that that's not as worth focusing on as a market because there's such a small segment of the market. But my instinct is that that section of the market is much more active and buys more. So I'm curious to hear from everyone on the panel um, how that plays out. Does the amount that the music deep heavy fan uh, purchases outweigh the fact that they're a small portion of the market? The whales versus yeah. the yeah. volume, the scale. Whale versus scale. So, I mean, in my time in the gaming space in particular, I think it influences this. I think it's directly uh, analogous to music. Um, is that is a tr it's a tremendously valuable, um, you know, uh, segment of the marketplace, and it it really is. Uh, you know, Alex Rink was sort of wrinkling her nose at this, but it's a very kind of cold and calculated calculation in some ways about where to spend your time and effort um, acquiring users, and says how much money do they spend over what period of time that I can count on, you know, multiply by how viral they are. In other words, if I acquire one of that user, will they acquire other users? And will those, what value do those other users have? That stuff is all measurable. It's an equation. It's some of the return rates times, you know, their app dial times, <laughs> you know, anyway, you know, times one over the K factor. So it's, it, it is totally knowable um, and therefore, depending on what those metrics say about those music aficionados, I'd be very surprised if they're not extremely valuable. Yeah, I'm, I'm no expert on that side of the question either, but I would say, I mean, look at just the airline industry or any other frequent traveling program. I mean, they, you know, they know that, you know, 10 or 20% of the people who, who frequent that, whatever that is, is where they're, you know, they put all their time and energy and, you know, in benefits and all that other stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I would, I would assume it's the same. I don't know what the... Like, well, they I, still, I, I mean, this is what, you know, the fan clubs that the actual artists run have premium products. This is why we have expensive vinyl sets. This is why we still make box sets for this, you know. There are people out there mining those people with the products that they really love and getting as much money out of them as they can. But you know, in the, I'll call it the streaming world where there's just a mass, a mass amount of people and some people are just leaving the thing on and running it while they, you know, vacuum their house. It's, it's, I guess I would say in, it, it statistically, it's probably not that the value isn't that much, you know, maybe, but the reality is, is that if you can get them with the right product or you can get them with a higher value service or maybe a higher quality product, they'll be the guys that would buy that. And this is who's this, you know, very high quality audio products is aimed at the audio aficionados as well as the uh, the, the super fans of the of the artists. So you, you know you see these new things that are coming out from Neil Young and other people. That's that's what they're aimed at. High res yeah. downloads are also gaining a lot of steam and traction as well. Exactly. And I would just I mean, ultimately it's like you know it's a whole separate panel, which is the long tail. Does it really work? I mean, do you is that what you focus on? Do you focus on the long tail? And that's how you're going to make your money, or you know what? I just need to get that 10% of the market that's really super active and sell to them. Depends so. on your business model. If you're advertising-based, you want the scale. If you're transaction-based, then you want the high-quality customers. Anyone else? Anyone want to tackle the question of privacy? We're all, we love privacy. It's all good. Pro-privacy. Here we go. Um, <laughs> privacy good. So how do we how do we balance our collection of this vast amounts of data in a way that doesn't make people feel creepy and turned off in the way that uh, I guess the the whole Jay Z Samsung app kind of triggered a tempest in a teapot uh, about the kinds of collection data that were that app was collecting. Any thoughts, suggestions? You just have to make it a pleasing experience, yeah. you I, know. I, and I stream something, and when whatever service I'm using when it starts really nailing what I like to hear, like, wow, I haven't heard that song in a long time. I love that song. Like, okay, I feel really good about it. Take all my data. I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's a trade-off. It's life. I mean. <laughs> I mean, the only other thing I would add to that, because I totally agree. I mean, like, I think there's so much good that can be done with data that it'd be a shame not to try. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we can always do is offer people the ability to, to get out. Yeah, the power and, comes and, and, control, and control their you data. You know, tell people you know? exactly what you're yeah. doing. You gotta 
be conscious of doing things that are fair. You can't cross the creep barrier, you know. You know, like <laughs> I buy airline tickets too. to Hawaii, and somehow my, you know, fourteen-year-old son's like, "Your parents are going to Hawaii. You should get these new shirts and things to buy for that trip. Tell your dad to go buy you a boogie board." You know, like that's super creepy. Like, what do you mean you're connecting my ticket purchase to my kids? You know, begging me for stuff. So, like. And that actually is happening. And so the reality is we're not in that business. We're kind it's of the creepy if you're not the 14-year-old kid who gets well, the I know board. That. I mean, like it's <laughs> like we just said, as long as somebody's happy Here's about your dad's the credit card balances so you can figure out how much money he's actually got. Um, so, <laughs> so anyways, I think it's, it's, a, it's really a, a uh, I think following the rules. Unfortunately, in our, in our business, it only takes like one bad actor and then like really bad things happen and then things will change. So, so far in the music space, not too many bad actors. Um, so that's good. We're kind of in music, which is good. If, if I was in generalized advertising, I'd be more concerned. Right. It's like the first time I, I looked at Google now and it knew that I'd ordered something from Amazon because it was reading through all my emails on Gmail and it was telling me when that package was going to arrive. <laughs> so like at first I was like, whoa, how did it know that? And is it really going through? But then I was like, that's actually a super useful feature. <laughs> like now I don't have to go to Amazon, track my package, all that stuff. So. But, if, but if they had a sales guy at your front door matching the delivery time of the package. Right. Well, the, 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 the drone would show up and drop it on my head. <laughs> well, thank you very much to the panelists, our distinguished panelists. We're very lucky to have these people here. Thank you. Thank you. We have t-shirts if anybody wants.